So when a lot of people hear the term economics, they think of like hard math or numbers, numbers, money. yeah, money, <laughs> money's the big one, right? There's this new field that's kind of popping up and it's called behavioral economics. Ah. And to understand the difference between behavioral economics and traditional economics, we need to turn to a bowl of cashews. <laughs> you have my attention. <laughs> so proceed. If there's one behavioral economist that any of us have heard of, it's probably Richard Thaler. He won a Nobel Prize a couple years ago, and he also starred alongside Selena Gomez in The Big Short. Now, if you're like me, you definitely aren't familiar with behavioral econ, and therefore you probably haven't heard of Richard. He is like the Karch Karai of behavioral econ. Definitely Karch Karai status. <laughs> so let's go back to the cashews. Okay. So Richard Thaler is having a party, and he's got a bunch of other economics PhD students sitting around the table with him. And Sounds like a wild party. <laughs> yes. It gets even wilder because there's a bowl of cashews there. People are sitting around, chatting, having conversation, but they keep eating these cashews. As you do. Yeah, there's a bowl of cashews. I am going to eat the cashews. Eventually, one of his friends says, like, will you take these cashews away from me? Like, we need this bowl gone because I'm going to keep eating the cashews. Right. So Richard Thaler goes over, grabs the bowl of cashews, picks them up, and moves them to the kitchen. So they're still there, but he's moved the bowl of cashews. And when he comes back, someone says, like, oh, thank you for removing the bowl of cashews. Like, I'm no longer grabbing the cashews and just eating them nonstop. But because all of them here are PhD students in economics, they start analyzing the situation. Why couldn't we just stop eating the cashews in the first place? I mean, a few cashews are fine, but the, the smart move in that scenario is like, okay, don't eat that many because we're serving dinner in like 10 minutes. Right. The realization that they had is that in traditional economics, it's assumed that if we didn't want any more cashews, we would just stop eating them. Like right. we would have complete total control to just say, you know, I see the bowl of cashews there, but I'm not going to eat any more of them. Mm-hmm. We all know that that's not true because we just keep eating them. And <laughs> We've so all sort of, lost the cashew battle. <laughs> yeah. So they're all just sitting there thinking, you know, what changed about this? And they realized that we changed our environment. Right. So there was just one simple change. And that is that the bowl of cashews was moved to the kitchen. So there's no longer even the option. Like there's no longer a choice that you have to make of should I eat the cashew or not? They changed the environment and they no longer had to make that choice. It was made for them. From my understanding, that illustrates the difference between econ and behavioral econ. Econ says, well, if you don't want them, you won't eat them. Behavioral econ says, you're probably not going to win that willpower battle. Change and adjust the environment so you can like shape and change the behavior. Correct? Exactly. Yeah. The real key here is that behavioral economics is trying to work with our nature rather than against it. In traditional economics, we're sort of, you know, fighting that internal struggle like, oh, I really want another cashew. You know, mm -hmm. I really want one, but I can't have one. Mm -hmm. And we eventually lose that battle. You mm -hmm. know, nine times out of 10, we're going to eat the cashews. Right. But with behavioral economics, we're saying, look, I know I'm going to eat the cashews when it's in front of me. But if I move it out of the way, then I can work with my nature rather than against it. Absolutely. Now, if you're like me, it's like I, I've hardly ever even heard the term behavioral econ, let alone understand what it means. But from the conversations I've had with Alex and the research that we've done the past couple of weeks, I think it's like a, such a powerful tool and can really, really help us in a learning journey. Like something we know for sure is if we're going to develop a skill or learn something new, we have to get on the path of taking and sustaining action. And understanding just some core principles of behavioral econ can help us stay on that path. The way I see this is this is like an essential tool to understand and use in any learning journey. Welcome to the Learner Lab Podcast. I'm Trevor Reagan. I'm Alex Belser. Each week, we're going to explore a topic to help us become better learners. 
If you're interested in more, you could check out thelearnerlab.com for videos, articles, and more pods. Let's go. The cashew story, there's like more to it than meets the eye. It's like, okay, there's a lot of lessons in behavioral econ wrapped up in this. But to start, it's like, okay, the rational move is just don't eat the cashew. The irrational thing is to to eat the cashew. And more times than not, if you're a human like us, we're going to eat the cashew. We're going to make the irrational choice in that scenario. But the good news here is that we sort of make these errors in predictable ways. So this Mm. is kind of a a term that Dan Ariely has coined. We are predictably irrational. There are things that we're going to do. Like if you set a bowl of cashews in front of us, we're going to eat way more than we want to. We're going to be irrational, but we can predict that that's going to happen. And this sort of illustrates why it's important to understand how we make these errors. Because if we understand how we're acting irrationally, we can make an effort to work with our nature rather than against it. Got it. So what I'm hearing is step one is to understand we are irrational. The next layer is to understand we can actually predict the ways that we're going to make irrational choices if we understand that, we can learn to kind of work with it rather than try to willpower our way or override this irrationality. 100%. A lot of ways that these errors sort of manifest is through self-control problems. Mm-hmm. So whether it's something small like trying to avoid the bowl of cashews that sits in front of us or something much larger like trying to write a book or take long periods of sustained action, these are all self-control problems. And the issue is that Too often we rely upon willpower to try and solve these self-control problems, whereas what we should be doing is focusing on setting up strategies that don't rely upon willpower, but actually leverage our environment to help us achieve that action. Well, so this is already super helpful to me because when I don't sustain the action of writing consistently, reading consistently, I shame myself like, oh, I must not want it enough or I'm not mentally strong enough. I don't have enough willpower. But right. what you're saying is it's not a willpower equation at all. Yeah, it's it's not a willpower thing. It's more about working with our nature rather than against it. A good way to understand this is through what economists call present bias. And really what that means is that we discount the future and value the present more heavily. So okay. let's dig into that a bit. So we can sort of think of us as having two different selves. There's the planner and the doer. And okay. the planner is sort of like our our forward thinking, you know, planning mind, whereas the doer is that impulsive, like, I want this now and I want to do it now, like immediate, immediate gratification. Okay, so planner is don't want to eat too many cashews because dinner's coming soon. The doer is I'm eating these right. cashews. These cashews right. taste great and I am going to continue eating them. Let's go. <laughs> and the big idea here is that it's really difficult to get our actions from the planner and the doer aligned. So it's hard mm. to get our planner and doer to be doing the same things that help us achieve our goals. So imagine that I were to come to you today and say, tomorrow you're going to get a snack at 2 p.m. And you get to choose whether it's going to be an apple or a candy bar. Which one would you choose for yourself? Give me that apple. Yeah, we want what's good for us. We're going to choose the apple because we know that that's a better choice for us to have for a snack than the candy bar. My planner making that optimal choice. Exactly. Now, what if I said, I have an apple or a candy bar for you to eat right now? Which one would you like? Give me that candy bar. Right. And that's the doer in action. So you're, right. you really want the candy bar because you know it's going to taste so good. Even though you know right. the apple's better for you, you can't for sure. resist the candy bar. And when it's like the thing happens in the future, my planner is more likely to make that choice. Right. Correct? Yep. That's like that's the, the rational move in that scenario. And if it's in the moment, 
sort of the irrational choices to take the candy bar. That's the doer. It wants like the instant gratification. Right. Exactly. Uh, this happens to me a lot. Uh, will happen to me a lot in school of like we'd have these huge assignments of like okay you have like all semester to write a paper and when it was first assigned I'd look at my calendar and be like oh I could spread the work out like a little bit every week I could have this thing done by the end it's super rational like my planner is like of course I see how I could lay this out right yet every single night I was supposed to work the doer would win and then I'm on Hulu <laughs> I'm on Netflix like it's always going to win when it's the day of yet. My planner knows what I need to be doing in the future. It's like, I've, I've lost that battle all the time. Right. And I mean, Jerry Seinfeld even has a little skit on this where he talks about night guy and morning guy. I never get enough sleep. I stay up late at night cause I'm night guy. <laughs> night guy wants to stay up late. What about getting up after five hours sleep? Oh, that's morning guys. problem. That's not my problem. I'm night guy. I stay up as late as I want. So you get up in the morning, you're warm, you're exhausted, groggy. Oh, I hate that night guy. That's a great example. Like Jerry Seinfeld is certainly not a behavioral economist, but he gets this. And we all do. Like we've all felt these things before. Now we're learning the science of why. Right. And so now that we sort of understand that we consist of the planner and the doer, how do we get our actions more aligned? And the way to do that is by strengthening the hand of the planner and tying the hand of the doer. I think an important thing here is when we're talking about self-control, planner, endure, this willpower stuff. These aren't new problems that we're just struggling with in the 21st century. This isn't like a cell phone problem. This is like human issues that are not new. Yeah, this is a problem that we've been struggling with for thousands of years. Like Homer wrote about this in the Odyssey in the 8th century. <laughs> Tell um, us a story about it. Yeah. Let's get into so, this. In the Odyssey, there are these mythical creatures, and they're called sirens. And the sirens okay. sing enchanting songs. But the issue with this is that they sing those songs to lure ships in and wreck them. The rocks of the sirens! Sirens. No man who hears their song can escape. They will draw us to the rocks and destroy us. We must flee Ulysses now! So it's a bit of a trap. It's like, music sounds beautiful. My ship, I'm going to steer it in their direction because I want to hear this. But then... You get shipwrecked. I'm done. Yes. But Odysseus gets it in his mind that he wants to hear the siren song. O Odysseus is on a ship. He's right. on this journey. Uh, he knows about the sirens, and he's curious. He wants to hear the music, right. but obviously doesn't want to get shipwrecked. Yeah. So what does he do? Quick, get some wax and stop up the ears of all the men. Tell them not to look to the right nor to the left, but to row. Row for their lives. What is it? Tie me to the mast. What's that? Whatever my mouth speaks, whatever orders I may give, do not obey them. What are you going to do? I want to hear their song. So Odysseus does two things. And the first is he has his sailors tie him down to the mast. So he says, <laughs> I really want to hear these songs, but I know that I'm going to want to control the ship. So I need you to tie me down to prevent me from taking action. <laughs> Love it. And then the second thing that he does is he tells all of his sailors to plug their ears with beeswax. That way they can't so hear they the sailors' hear songs. It. Yeah. So they can just steer the ship safely. Okay. So they're approaching the sirens. They tie him down. We got the, bee, the the beeswax in their ears. They go by the sirens. Right. As they get closer. You he hear the beautiful music. Yeah, and he starts just screaming, like, untie me. Like, I, I want to get closer, you know, untie me so that I can steer the ship closer and closer. Untie me! Yeah, it's, it's like working. They're, they're like, enchanted music is working. Right. But it sounds like his squad holds it down. They do what they're told. Keep the, the, the wax in their ears. And they don't get shipwrecked. Yeah, they Big win for the squad. They avoid the disaster completely. 
Let's go. Now, let's spend some time just breaking down the tenets of this story through the principles that we've talked yeah, about. So I see there's there's three key points here. And first is that Odysseus had a self-control problem. So he knew that he wanted to hear the siren's song, but he knew that he wouldn't be able to resist that. So he couldn't... No have, one ever has. Yeah, n- no one's done it before. So he had a self-control problem. But he knew that he couldn't rely upon willpower. So he did two other things. And the first is he had his sailors tie him down to the mast. And the mm-hmm. second is he had the sailors plug their ears with beeswax. So these these changes to his environment made it less of an issue of willpower. He actually shaped the environment to help him do what he needed to be done. This is literally what you said of strengthening the hand of the planner and literally tying the hand right. of the doer. Yeah. Like In this they scenario, tied he was, up the doer. He was actually <laughs> tied down here. Right. Uh, now, it, but it's perfect. Yeah. So the good news here is that we don't always have to physically tie ourselves down and put wax in our ears to control our environment, right? There's all sorts of different ways that we can go about helping us achieve our goals here. What all these examples are saying, and also what Wendy Wood taught us in the Habits episode is to change our actions, change our behaviors, we must shape our environment. Now, okay, that's like, that's making sense so far to me. Mm -hmm. But like, what are some ways that we can change our environment? Like, let's get into the weeds of like, what are some manipulations that we can use to shape our environment that could help change our actions? Great question. So let's let's start off with this idea of commitment devices. So how do we encourage ourselves to stick to a certain course of action? And we can do that by committing to other people or doing things that force us to commit to ourselves. So the simplest okay. way is if I want to do something like, let's say I want to lose 10 pounds by summer. I can make a commitment to you that, Trevor, I'm going to lose 10 pounds by July 1st. And just by mm-hmm. telling you that, I've already committed myself towards that action. So, and it, it seems small, but it's powerful. Yeah. Like we're wired, we're social creatures, right. and making that statement out loud helps. Yeah, me. I don't want to let you down, so I'm more encouraged, more motivated to stick to that action. And if we want to make that commitment even stronger, we can do things like put money down on it. So, I can say, if I don't meet my goal of losing ten pounds by July first, I owe you fifty bucks. And honestly, I think like sort of the North Star here with trying to manipulate our environment to encourage behavior is to think about friction. So if we want to encourage a certain behavior, we want to reduce friction. We want to make it easier to do something. But if we don't want to do something, if we want to discourage a behavior, we want to increase the friction involved. So we want to make it harder to do that. In our Habits episode with Wendy Wood, we spend a lot of time talking about friction. Two of the big principles that we learned from Wendy were proximity and visibility. Those are two big things that determine how much friction is on a behavior. If something's close and visible, we're more likely to engage with it than if it's far away and hidden. So it's useful for us to be thinking about proximity and visibility when designing our environment. I think another way to look at it is like we like change the environment in a detrimental way, which is why we don't like sustain the action. This is the I want to start working out and I'm going to do it at 5 a.m. It's just like, you just frictioned yourself. Like, the the environment changed. And we try to do too many things at once. So it's like, even if it's, like, we understand that changing your environment is important. But like you said, like, we might choose, I'm going to start working out, first of all. And then I'm also going to do it at 5 a.m. And I'm going to do the most intense routine that I can find. And I'm going to change my diet. And I'm going to do all these different things. And it's like, we should focus on isolating one variable at a time. Right. As we get into these examples, I think we'll see, like, yeah, we've kind of like squashed willpower a bit, but that's right. okay. Like that could be a fuel source. I think right. what we're saying is you don't just don't depend on willpower. Yeah. 
because like willpower can be helpful yeah uh, and it is a useful tool but you can't rely solely on willpower right. especially if it requires sustained action it's like we can will our way to the gym for a while but to sustain that habit it's going to require some changes to the environment so that's right. what we're trying to nail down now I think the implications for individuals are fairly clear here. If you have a goal that you're trying to achieve or something that you're trying to do more or less of, it's pretty straightforward how you can manipulate your environment. But where it gets more interesting is for leaders. If you're a leader, how do you encourage a certain behavior? And I think the best way to do this is to ask, well, what is the behavior we want to see and how do we shape the environment to encourage that? Let's brainstorm some situations. Let's say you're leading a meeting and you have five people in the meeting with you. You want to encourage people to speak up and speak their minds, right? Yep. So what's a way that you might be able to sort of use behavioral economics to right. so to like set up the environment? I've, I've seen a professional sports team do this. Mm -hmm. uh, in a lot of their meetings, what they found is people wouldn't speak up. And that was like, if it's a meeting, we want to hear the opinion or questions. Like, let's discuss these things. We don't have all the answers. Let's put them on the table. Right. And so what they did, they started to pass out note cards and on the note cards, they would have like a break throughout the meeting and they uh -huh. collect the note cards. If you have a question, you write the, write the question on the note card and you stack them. When they come back from the break, they'll read the, all the questions and answer them to the room. Mm -hmm. So by making it anonymous like that, you weren't worried about being judged. So it's a small change in the environment and the strategy. Right. way more people are asking questions and then the next layer down they said if you want to meet about this question in private put your name on the card we won't read okay. it but that's a signal that we can meet in private and so that i know seems like a simple strategy but that change in environment like 10x the questions that were being yeah. asked well and to me that ties a lot to like uh, psychological safety right like they yeah. made it a safe environment Yes. For people to basically, you know, put any questions or thoughts that they may have. But what they did is that they sort of changed how the environment works to allow them to do that. Yeah. So by that one small change of like, okay, we're going to write it down on a note card. So yep. it's anonymous by making it anonymous. Yep. Now you're encouraging a behavior and that otherwise might not have taken place. And the cool thing is after doing that for a while, we're getting better at the skill of asking questions. And maybe over time you kind of wean yourself off of doing the note cards and we're doing it live, but it's a good first step to start engaging in these actions. Right. That, that fits the mold. That's changing the environment to get the actions. They didn't say, they didn't every meeting say, you need to ask more questions. You need to ask more questions. That would right. be the willpower approach. Right. Well, and I think something else that's uh, worth noting here is we arrived at this example sort of through working backwards, right? Like what, what behavior do we want to encourage? And if we think about that, then that's how we start designing our environment to do that. So we're not just saying everyone needs to speak up once or something. Yes. We're thinking what type of characteristics do we want to see in our team? And in this case, we want, you know, a safe environment for people to speak up and share their opinions. Yes. And so when we work backward from there, then it becomes, okay, how do we design our environment Absolutely. to best set that up? And our first instinct will usually be the willpower road of like, well, we'll just tell them to do it or they should just want to do it. It's like, yeah, okay. But also let's go with it, manipulating the environment because that's more likely to get the ball rolling. I think even in big policy, I remember in uh, Dan Ariely's book, predictably irrational. They talked about the small difference of uh, opting in versus opting out is mm -hmm. like can create a huge, 
huge percentage boost in the amount of people that do something that's important. They, I think they talked about like retirement or something. Yeah, they they, just, I mean, there's examples with everything, like from retirement savings to organ donation to anything, really. Right. So when it's easy, it's easier to just like, oh, you're already signed up. You have to opt out if you don't want it. The friction's mm-hmm. gone. The environment is helping you in that case. And the the opposite is true. It's like there's more friction to remove yourself from this thing. Um, So it's like the cool thing about this topic is it works for the individual. It works for the policy and also the like in between. It's like I know a few coaches that um, they they've had they essentially wanted to build like office hours. They're like, hey, we value like this one on one connection and want to build these relationships. And at first Mm -hmm. they went with the open door strategy of just like, yep, like my door's open whenever you get a chance. If there's anything you want to talk about, come to my office Right. And like not many people would do that, but the, the hack or the, the way they would change the environment and flip it, they just said, okay, throughout the week, you're scheduled a time. It's like, this is your time you're coming. Mm-hmm. And so it's just like removed all friction. It's like, Hey Alex, your time is at 1 PM on Wednesday. We're doing these meetings. Right. And, and, and that's sort of like the, the default setting in a way, right? Like yes. it's sort of, you're automatically set, you're opted in automatically. Right. And it's the same end point. We want to have one-on-one meetings, but it's a smarter way to get the ball rolling. It's just required. Right. Um, and well, go ahead. I, th- I think there is a clarification. I don't think that we should take these ideas and sort of think, oh, we need to set up this very structured, you know, there need to be a lot of rules where everything needs to be, you know, you're committed to all of these different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's more about thinking like what's really important and then setting up the system yes. specifically for that. But well, we don't want to get like too far into the micromanagey of course uh, not. Of, all this of stuff. course not. What is the outcome? How do I remove a bit of friction to make it more likely to happen? And then I think like most things, once those coaches for the professional sports team got to hear the questions and understand the value of the discussion, they did more of it. And the same is true for the, these coaches and their players. Once you start these one-on-one meetings, you start to look forward to it. There's value in it. The, right. the 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 idea is like how do we get our foot in the door to start this um and i think with a little creativity like kind of what we're doing right now start at the end and then think about well what would be a environmental shift that we could make to maybe help that treat it as an experiment though like who knows what exactly the change is going to be but right. i would recommend like a small experiment and that's another cool part of this research is sometimes it's like the smallest change can lead to a big, big change in behavior, which is really cool. Another good one. This is an education one that I, I picked up from some teacher. I can't remember where, but uh, I saw her doing it and it was, I thought, brilliant. So if I'm giving a talk to a group of students, the, the common thing is like I'll present an idea and then I'll ask a question. One student will raise their hand and answer. And in a way that kind of lets all the other students off the hook. It's just like, okay, Sarah answered. Good job, Sarah. But me over on the other side, I don't have to think about it. And so what she did, it's, I think, brilliant. Whenever she asked a question to the group, she would actually ask it and say, take 30 seconds and write down what you think the answer is. Everyone has to write. Then she goes, now 
would someone like to share to the group? And mm-hmm. what that does is it's a small change in the approach and environment, but it makes every student in the room at least have to think it through. And even right. if they wrote down the wrong thing, they get to compare it against the right answer. Like that is going to be stickier. They're essentially getting them more reps. It's like, right. wow. If traditional economics assumes that we're rational, you're sort of starting with, um, like if you're a teacher, you're assuming that everyone is going to speak up and share their answer, right? Yes. Or that everyone is going to be thinking about their answer at least. Even if someone least. else answers, we're all cued in. Right. So you sort of have to put yourself in the mindset of how might we actually be acting irrationally in this example? And so you might be thinking, you know, if, if someone, like you said, if someone raises their hand, that sort of lets everyone else off the hook from actually having to answer. Right. But if you start thinking, well, maybe we can design this to get everyone that rep of you yes. know engaging with the material. And yes. a way to do that is by right. having someone write down the answer. So then they have to go through that. And it's a small 30 second adjustment that I, if you just like, just do the math, it's like, well, everyone has to think about it now. Like there's a lot of value in that. Right. But you get small environmental change. That's a good way to think about it. My students are not rational because they're humans. I'm not mm-hmm. rational either. Right. So how do we work with that? We right. switch the environment. And again, it's not a bad thing. Like I think irrationality oftentimes gets a bad rap, but really it's that's just who we are and we can yeah. actually use that to our advantage. So yes. it's just more about thinking about how we actually how we deviate from rationality yes. and how we can set up the system. Right. And to again, still achieve what we so want. the 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 bl- the 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 brainstorm is I want my people to answer these questions. How could I do this so everyone's getting those experiences? This small 30 second adjustment will help people do that. Boom. Right. But again, right. it's not the willpower. Let's change the environment. I love like we can't say that enough. I hope uh, producer Jack keeps that in. I know it sounds repetitive. It's like, let's not depend on willpower. Let's get creative and adjust the environment like that is a huge takeaway here. Mm-hmm. Also, I think it's worth pointing out the the idea that our it changes in the environment can influence behavior. It's not always used for good. It's just like we get like screwed over at the grocery store all the time. It's like, yeah, they remove all friction and put that candy right at the end. That's a change in the environment. And I guarantee that changes the behavior. I'm way more likely to buy the candy when it's right there. I'm waiting in line. It's staring me in the face. Right. And that's sort of the the point here is our environments are going to be designed for a specific behavior, whether we're aware of it or not. Right. But once we sort of understand how important our environment is, sure. then we can start setting it up to encourage a specific behavior. Okay. Uh, we've given a lot of examples. We talked about <laughs> Homer. We've talked about cashews. Yeah. We've talked about doers and planners. And, and I think it all still, if we just zoom out, Perhaps there's three main pillars that we're trying to hammer home in this episode. One, we think we're rational, but we're not. We can learn to work with that. We can, it's predictable. We can learn to work with it. In order to work with it, it's not depending on willpower. It's making changes to the environment. Now, if we take this to learning uh, for leaders and learners, it's like use that sort of framework that we were using together. What is the action I want to see? Let's not rely upon willpower. What is a small change in the environment that I could make that will lead to more of those actions? Now, be willing to experiment, be willing to adapt, but that would be the framework I would recommend to people. And that, I think, could make a big, big difference. 
Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back next week.